If a word can form a sentence, it refers to something outside language. If it cannot, it is just a language gadget. This has nothing to do with abstractness and concreteness. It is a linguistic difference. For instance, the abstract word sin can be used as a sentence as in the famous answer to the question, what was, what was the sermon about? But the next question, what did the preacher say, had to be answered by a whole sentence. He was against it. Quote, unquote, against by itself wouldn't do as an answer. Neither would dis, for he disapproved of it. That's because against and dis are examples of language gadgets. They have no meaning except combined with meaningful words in a sentence. Now, the point of all this is that difficult, complex, abstract language is cluttered up with gadgets. If we stick to this purely linguistic test, we can measure difficulty by counting gadgets, and we can simplify our speech and writing by throwing them out. Language gadgets, as you've seen, are of two kinds. Words by themselves, like against, and parts of words, affixes, like dis. The more harmful of the two for plain talk are the affixes since the reader or hearer cannot understand what the gadget does to the sentence before he has disentangled it from the word it is attached to. Each affix burdens his mind with two jobs. First, he has to split up the word into its parts, and second, he has to rebuild the sentence from these parts. To do this, not even take a split second, of course, but it adds up. If you want to measure board difficulty, therefore, you have to count affixes. Here is what you do. You count every affix you find in your text, every prefix, suffix, or inflectional ending, with the exception of S at the end of a word, EN in children, oxen, etc., and D or T in could, did, had, might, ought, should, stood, went, would. Some words have two affixes like disapprove. Some have three, like disapproving. Some seem to have nothing but affixes like philosophy. Discount one in such words. When you have finished counting, figure out how many affixes there are per 100 words. Or, of course, you can take a 100-word sample to begin with. Then you can check the result against this table. 22 or less is very easy. 26 is easy. 31 is fairly easy. 37 is standard. And very difficult is 54 or more. Again, for the time being, the average reader standard of 37 is most important for you to know. 
the best example of very easy prose, about 20 affixes per 100 words, is the King James Version of the Bible. Literary writing tends to be fairly difficult. Scientific prose is very difficult. This book has on the average 33 affixes per 100 words. To simplify a given passage, count first the, pass the number of affixes, then replace affix words systematically by root words, or at least by words with fewer affixes, until you arrive at the level you want to reach. The translating job is sometimes difficult, and a dictionary with simple definitions will help. There are two dictionaries of this type in the market. One is the Thorndike Century Senior Dictionary, which defines words for high school students. The other is the New Method English Dictionary by Michael West, which explains words to foreigners in a 2,000-word definition vocabulary. A third one, Ogden's General Basic English Dictionary, is not recommended for this purpose. Using Thorndike or West, however, is only a makeshift until somebody compiles a real simplifier's dictionary. Incidentally, both are useless for spotting affixes. The handiest tool for this, as I said before, is the concise Oxford Dictionary. Let me show you how it is done on a passage from Reflections on the Revolution of Our Time by Harold Lasky. Lasky, a leading British socialist, writes well, and his topic is exciting, but unfortunately he is a professor by trade, and his language is pure academic jargon. Here's a key passage that seems worth translating into plain English. What is the essence of fascism? It is the outcome of capitalism in decay. It is the retort of the propertied interests to a democracy which seeks to transcend the relations of production implied in a capitalist society. But it is not merely the annihilation of democracy. It is also the use of nationalist feeling to justify a policy of foreign adventure in the hope thereby of redressing the grievances which are the index to capitalist decay. Wherever fascism has been successful, it has been built upon a protest by the business interests against the increased demands of the workers. To make that protest effective, the business interests have, in fact, concluded an alliance with some outstanding condottiere and his mercenaries who have agreed to suppress the workers' power in exchange for the possession of the state. But as soon as the condottiere has seized the state, he has invariably discovered that he cannot merely re restore the classic outlines of capitalism and leave it there. Not only has his own army expectations having, having identified himself with the state, he has to use it to solve the problems through the existence of which he has been able to arrive at power. He has no real doctrine except his passionate desire to remain in authority. His test of good is the purely pragmatic test of success, and he finds invariably that success means using the state power over the nation partly to coerce and partly in ca to cajole it into acquiescence in his rule.
that acquiescence is the sole purpose of and the sole justification for the methods that he uses. The only values he considers are those which seem likely to contribute to his success. Now, this has 56 affixes per 100 words and rates very difficult. The following translation is 32 and should read fairly easily. What makes fascism? It comes from capitalism in decay. It is the rich people's answer when democracy tries to go beyond the capitalist way of running production. But it does not stop at wiping, our, wiping out democracy. It also plays on the people's love for their country to put over dangerous plans against other countries and so they hope, they hope to set right the wrongs. To set right the wrongs capitalism in decay brings about. Wherever fascism has been successful, it has been helped at the start by businessmen trying to keep the workers from getting more. To do this, the businessmen have in fact joined up with some outstanding gang leader and has hired soldiers who have made a bargain to put down the workers' power and become owners of the state in return. But as soon as the gang leader has seized the state, he has always found that he cannot just bring back the standard forms of capitalism and leave it there. Not only does his own army wait for rewards, now that he and the state are the same, he has to use it to solve the problems that made the businessmen put him in power. He has no beliefs except his strong wish to stay in power. His test of good is a test of success, and he always finds the success that success means using state power to force or coax the people to yield to his rule. This is the sole purpose or reason for his methods. Useful to him is, the on is only what seems likely to add to his success. End of excerpt. You'll notice that some of the key words have been left untouched like fascism, capitalism, democracy, production. Other affix words like decay, problem, success, methods did not seem worth translating since they are easy to understand for every reader and would be hard to replace in this passage. Remember that whenever you try to limit your vocabulary rigidly, you become artificial and maybe un-English. If you want to achieve plain talk, you have to avoid that mistake. Another feature of the translation is that it is much shorter, not only in syllables but also in words. Ordinarily, if you replace affix words by root words, you'll have to use more words. But it so happens that there is a lot of dead wood in this type of academic jargon that naturally falls by the wayside, once you start rewriting, he has no real doctrine, becomes he has no beliefs, and the methods that he uses, his methods. I admit that it is not easy to write about economics or political science in easy language. 
gifted writers are rare in this field. And a truly readable book like Bernard Shaw's Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism is a great exception. Let me quote you as contrast how Shaw begins his appendix instead of a bibliography. Excerpt. This book is so long that I can hardly think that any woman will want to read much more about socialism and capitalism for some time. Besides, a bibliography is supposed to be an acknowledgement by the author of the books from which his own book was compiled. Now, this book is not a compilation. It is all out of my own head. It was started by a lady asking me to write her a letter explaining socialism. I thought of referring her to the hundreds of books which have been written on the subject, but the difficulty was that they were nearly all written in an academic jargon, which, though easy and agreeable to students of economics, politics, philosophy, and sociology generally, is unbearably dry, meaning unreadable to women not so specialized. And then all these books are addressed to men. You might read a score of them without ever discovering that such a creature as a woman had ever existed. In fairness, let me add that you might read a good many of them without discovering that such a thing as a man ever existed. So, I had to do it all over again in my own way and yours. And though there were piles of books about socialism and an enormous book about capitalism by Karl Marx, not one of them answered the simple question, what is socialism? The other simple question, what is capital, was smothered in a mass of hopelessly wrong answers, the right one having hit on, as far as my reading goes, only once, and that was by British economist Stanley Jevons when he remarked casually that capital is spare money. I made it not a note of that. End of excerpt. This is splendid writing, excellently readable for people like you and me. It has 30, 38 affixes for, per 100 words. It just so happens that Shaw seems unable to write like this. The extensiveness of the present volume is such that it appears almost inconceivable that female readers should desire to prolong the study of socialism and capitalism for an additional period of time. This circumstance apart, a bibliography traditionally is supposed to serve as an acknowledgement offered by the author of the original sources that contributed to the genesis of his compilation. In contrast, however, to this usually followed procedure, the present volume differs radically from a compilation inasmuch as it was solely and entirely conceived and executed by the author himself. And so on. Translating normal English into affix English is easy. With the help of Roget's thesaurus, it's no work at all. Moral, if you want to write plain English, don't use your Roget. Here's an exercise. Translate into fairly e easy English, 30 affixes per 100 words, the following passage from Lasky. All government arises because men move in opposed ways to their objectives. No one but an anarchist would deny that it is, its existence is, under any circumstances, we can foresee, a necessary condition of peaceful social relations. But the argument that, especially in the economic sphere, we are over-governed, is not one in which 
it is easy to have patience. Less government only means more liberty in a society about the foundations of which men are agreed and in which adequate economic security is general. In a society where there is grave divergence of view about their, those foundations and where there is the economic insecurity exemplified by mass unemployment, it means liberty only for those who control the sources of economic power.